I've said before, I've managed to bring me down enough. So, so hopefully we can start to uh, resurrect things a little bit. The main topic of what I want to, want to talk about tonight is something which is known in Theravada Buddhism particularly as the Seven Treasures. And this is a lovely little claim for you. It's a seven treasures that will make you rich beyond material wealth. How about that for a selling point? <laughs> but before I get on to what the seven treasures are, there we are, the cliffhanger again, um, what I want to kind of just talk about is just to go a little bit back to last night and talk about habit patterns and the power and the compulsion of those habit patterns because let's not underestimate them. They're incredibly powerful. And you think you might be, as in a retreat or even just in your ordinary meditation practice at home, sailing along quite smoothly and then they will erupt. <laughs> you know, as if they've never gone away. Um, and they will come back into your um, into your minds and as we were saying this morning that you know, the, the thought ends up becoming the deed um, here so let us not underestimate the power of these and the compulsive power um, and the pull of these habit patterns particularly when life gets hard the temptation when life gets hard is always to drop back as I was saying last night into the familiar you, know, you run to the familiar for comfort. And this was right at the tail end of what I was saying last night. Um, we run back, even if we know it's bad for us, because we know it in some way. And as we sit here on our cushions, um, doing this retreat, you will get these habit patterns reasserting themselves, even after periods of relative quiet and relative stability, they will come back with a force and a vengeance as well. <laughs> uh, you know, it's the revenge of the return of, <laughs> of these habit patterns. So don't think they've gone away. But the problem is, of course, with all of these habit patterns, we invest them with far too much seriousness. We take them far, far too seriously. Um, we, it's almost as if because we think it, it has to be important. But if you actually examined about 99% of your thought patterns, <laughs> that's probably overestimating, but you, you can see what I mean. About 90% or something like that is pretty irrelevant and pretty banal, most of it. Um, but we take it terribly seriously, and it's almost as if we inflate what is coming into our minds simply because it comes into our minds by paying it great attention. And it's like paying attention, as I suggested one of the other evenings, to a spoilt child. You know, because they're attached to the ego, they're part of the ego's machinations, and therefore, um, they want your attention. You know, come on, I want your attention. That's what they're saying to you. And what do we do? We follow meekly and say, yes. <laughs> I'll give you my attention. I'm joking about this, but it's quite a serious business when, of course, you're caught up in, in their thrall um, and when they seem to have this power over you. Now, one of the things I've been saying all over the week, all through meditation sessions, and it's something that's so important, I just want to keep emphasising and emphasising and emphasising it, which is pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on, but don't take it too seriously. Acknowledge what is there, but bring yourself back with attentiveness to what you are doing. Now, this word satipatthana, which, as I've said, and I gave a gloss the other night, but I just want to remind you, the word sati means to remember. That's one of its connotations. It has many, many other connotations. But the important one here that I really want to get through to you is that it's about remembering what you're doing actually being here in the present, doing what you're doing. Be that the washing up, the hoovering, the ironing, all of the mundane tasks that, ever, you know, that often pop into our mind and we go, boring, <laughs> you know, because we're not used to exciting things. And these are not exciting. Well, hmm, <laughs> try it out. Try it out with awareness. There's a lot more in them than you think. 
in these you know, very ordinary tasks of just being centred where we are, rather than not being at home when we're doing them and distracting them to ourselves by all the myriads of ways that we can do that, and also by paying attention to this constant, this constant stream of thought which runs through our minds, which is pulling us in other directions and saying, you really shouldn't be doing that. That's not really very interesting. (laughs) You better go off and do something far more interesting. And these sorts of things, and that's often what's going on in meditation, is again, that kind of talk I gave about three nights ago. You know, often that's what's going on in meditation. There's far more interesting things to do. There's far more captivating things to do. You know, rather than sitting here trying to develop matter. <laughs> Sounds odd, doesn't it? Trying to develop love. There's far more interesting things to do. <laughs> and develop love towards other beings and feelings and genuine kindness towards other beings, including ourselves. So these thoughts are likely to pull you off kilter every so often. Um, but with that mind that welcomes them in as friends but lets them go there should be no problem now it might have to be constantly reminding yourself to perceive your thought processes in that way to see them as friends and not see them as enemies thoughts are not your enemies you're not what you think I mean, that's a very good phrase. It's not my phrase. I think John Kabat-Zinn, it comes from John Kabat-Zinn. And it's a very interesting phrase. You're not what all these processes are. You're far more than all those thought processes. And you're far more than all of the compulsive habits that are there within those thought processes. And so, you know, in constantly reminding ourselves, in constantly developing sati. In fact, the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta said there is one way. He calls it ekiyana, which is there is one path or there is one vehicle, and that path is mindfulness. Mindfulness in all its ramifications, not just in one particular technique. It's mindfulness through all the four foundations, it's mindfulness as exhibited in the Brahman Faharas, and it's mindfulness in all the other spheres, including what I'm going to talk about tonight. So... This is the very real issue that we're confronting day to day is the power and the compulsion of our habits, our desires very often, our desires to want to do something. Remember what I was saying last night, that the arousal of desire, if one stays with it, it will decline because desire is just a thought, just like any other thought. It's just a very, very powerful thought, that is all. It's a very, very powerful compulsion. Now, to come to what I call the letter story, how do we get ourselves out of this mess? <laughs> you know, this is the big one. Um, the one that I'm sure we've all asked ourselves, how on earth do we get here and how do we get ourselves out of it? And really this is what the Buddhist path is all about because once the diagnosis is complete, and in a way, that is a very big task. You know, we've only begin, begun to scratch the surface of it in the talks I've been giving you over the last few nights or so. <clears throat> it's a huge area, this area of the problem that we find ourselves in, because there will be new manifestations of a problem occurring in daily life again and again and again and again, and we're going to have to deal with them. And so the path itself is laid out in terms of a way, it's called a mugga, a way, a way to awakening, a way to wake ourselves up. Generally speaking, that path is called the Eightfold Path. And normally I would kind of launch into talking about the Eightfold Path at this point, but I'm not going to tonight. I'm going to leave this till tomorrow night. Um, because I want to come back to some really firm psychological conditions which I think are really important to be aware of in the development of the path itself. And these are the seven treasures with their wonderful little selling tag, you know, making you rich beyond material wealth, is what the Buddha said. And the first of these is what is known as sada, which is usually translated horribly. Um, in most of the the books that you'll find around, so please don't take it seriously when you find it. It's usually translated as faith, which I think is a horrible translation, um, because it does not mean faith, because faith is generally restricted to theistic religious traditions with a whole set of propositions. 
um, that we were expected to adhere to. And then you end up with things like blind faith, for example. Um, it often seems to me that within certain traditions that the more crazy the propositions are, the more you're expected to believe in them. Um, and that's not what the Buddhist path is about. You're not expected to believe in any crazy proposition. So this is not subscribing and signing up to a whole set of propositions. So sadha is usually translated, or better translated, I should say, as confidence and trust based on knowledge. So it's very, very empirical that we have confidence and trust in what we're doing because we have already seen something which we know to be true. Now here, of course, when we're talking about confidence and trust, this is simply a means by which we learn. It's nothing different from the way that we learn. If you're learning, for example, if you're studying for anything, if you go to university or studying for an A-level or anything of that form, you have to have a degree of confidence and trust in the teacher, um, that the teacher knows what they're talking about, um, because you don't. Now, that might be based on something you do know, and that is being used as a means of moving you forward. So it's simply a pedagogical device. And the Buddha is saying, don't have blind faith, but have confidence and trust. And here we start off, of course, with the idea, where we started night one virtually, that there is dukkha. Is dukkha a belief? I believe I have dukkha? Sounds odd, doesn't it? Yeah. I either have it or I don't. Yeah. And there's either some truth to that, some empirically verifiable truth to the fact that there is dukkha in my experience, and just for those who are still struggling with these Pali words as I use them, dukkha, remember, of course, is, is this unsatisfactoriness, which is the heart of our condition, this unpleasantness, this um, feeling of you know, things not going right in our life, all the way through from the tragedies and all the way through to the irritations and the minor, you know, the minor problems of life. Everything on that spectrum. Is that something that we believe in? Well, I would suggest not, is it? It's something that we either have or we don't have. It's there in our lives and it's observable or it isn't. If it isn't observable, I'm in the God realm. <laughs> I'm a God, wow. Um, but for most of us, that's not the case. For most of us, that we observe some degree of dukkha in our life. We believe there is something that isn't quite right. Is that feeling sometimes of not feeling quite at home? So sadha is, in a sense, built upon that first initial insight. Yeah. It might be, in fact, for some of you, probably not all of you, but it might be the fact that leads you to a place like this, to engage in what you're doing, to engage in some meditation practice, to engage in further learning about this kind of path. It's because you have a degree of confidence or trust um, that there is something to it. Yeah? That's all you can say at this stage, because a lot of it is case unproven, you know, until you actually go through it. And this is very, very important. Um, paraphrasing absolutely wildly here, basically the Buddha says, don't believe the word I say, because I say it. Yeah. What he's asking us to do, he says, you know, and it's a very, this is an oft-quoted quoted piece, it's particularly in the Tibetan version of it, it says, if man hands you a piece of gold, what do you do? Do you accept their word for it? No. The sensible man goes away and gets it assayed, you know, weighs it, investigates it, sees whether it is real gold or simply fool's gold. Yeah. Now that is what the Buddha is requiring us to do. Now what he's saying, of course, is there is an awful lot of the range of our experience that we're engaging in, you know, such as perhaps some of the things I've spoken about already. You know, some of those things we can investigate, some of those things we can readily see, some of them perhaps, even the things I've said over the last few nights, some of them might not be readily apparent and might not actually be there within our experience at this moment because we haven't investigated them, or they might just be absent for us. So therefore, it's still the authority of your own experience which counts. That is foremost, that is primary. However, our own experience at this stage, because it is limited, will only take us so far. 
So the Buddha is saying to pursue the path, you need a good degree of confidence and trust in the teacher. The teacher being the Buddha Dharma here. Nothing else. So this is not blind faith. I really, really do hope you do hear that. This is completely different from any conception of signing up to anything. You don't have to, in Buddhist terms, sign up to anything. Um, Stephen Batchelor, who I mentioned the other night, is often teaching here, of course, wrote this book called Buddhism Without Beliefs. Despite the fact I disagree with quite a lot within it, um, I can actually see his point, is that actually you do not have to be engaged in a belief system. It's not a belief system as such. And if we do, I think we miss the essence of what the inquiry is about if we sign up to it as being a whole set of belief and belief structures. It actually distorts the path and it actually means that we end up looking for authorities where the only authority ultimately is you. Because we have confidence and trust, it does not necessarily blind us and shouldn't blind us um, to our own experience and our passage through that experience and the way it opens up within the inquiry. And as the Buddha himself says, he says, you yourself must do the work for your own salvation. Buddhas are simply teachers. That is all. That's a very important phrase, bearing in mind that you have to do the work. You know, that the authority in some sense is only guidance. That is all. Yeah, as the Buddha quite clearly says in you know, many, many passages throughout the Pani Canon, I cannot give anybody salvation. I cannot give them liberation. Only you yourself can give yourself liberation. Yeah? So you must do the work. And sometimes it's hard work in these instances. So that is the first of the um, seven treasures. The second of the seven treasures, which we've already touched on this morning, but I'll reiterate um, and perhaps touch on areas of it in slightly more detail, which is sila, morality. The rules of training by which we guide our lives. Very, very important. As you heard me say this morning, again, just to re-emphasize it because it is such an important facet, that sila is that which founds and grounds the practice. You know, sila is actually the social cement, actually, in much of our daily life. It's that which eases and cements us together in social cohesion. So that, for example, the first of the precepts, as you remember, if you can remember them, um, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. That means harming those among us. But it's not just limited to human beings. It means all beings. And this is at the foundation of Buddhist practice. In fact, something the Buddha in some senses borrows slightly from Jainism, or Jainism as we usually kind of mispronounce it in English, um, from Jainism, which is ahimsa, non-violence. Yeah. But again, he finds a middle way. Because the Jains take this extreme version of non-violence, of you know, kind of wearing face masks and looking constantly on the floor in case they're going to tread on a bug, and things like that. And so the Buddha is trying again to find a middle way between the ordinary ways of living and the extreme ways of the Jains. And this way becomes this way of non-harm um, that we are expected to live by as we move through life. So this means non-harming across this vast spectrum of our behaviour. Because we do harm in so many ways, as you heard me say this morning. You know, from the littlest, smallest, dismissive gesture to the slightly harsher word, uh, to the intonation in the voice which is slightly dismissive, uh, to the not listening to somebody, for example, um, which can be extremely harmful to another. Um, there's a quite a reasonably famous, um, well, he's actually writes, writes in French, but he's uh, Lithuanian by birth, um, ethicist called Emmanuel Levinas, who died probably about five, six years ago. And Emmanuel Levinas said the, the, the first ethical rule um, was expressed in the face. 
And the first ethical rule was, don't harm me, don't hurt me. So when you look at another, he's saying, that's the first thing that the face tells you, don't hurt me. It's very powerful as a thought, you know, because sometimes to, to look into the face of the other is to look into fear, and to look into all sorts of worry about being hurt. Now, in a sense, I'm just using this because I think it's, it's another um, example or expression of what is there in Buddhist thought, which is this absolute idea of non-harm as far as is possible. That doesn't mean, of course, wearing face masks and you know, looking at your feet constantly in case you tread on the bug. Um, doesn't mean stop driving cars and things like that. Uh, because it's the intention to harm that's important. It's not the fact that sometimes we create harm inadvertently, although that still has its karmic consequences, and therefore we should be as aware as possible, but it's that absolute intention to harm. Now, given that we don't know ourselves terribly well, we often don't know what our intentions are. Yeah? So some of these kind of so-called inadvertent harms that we do might actually be intentional. So therefore it requires us to examine our intentions yeah, as clearly and fully as possible. As you can see, an alert mind, a mind which is clear, a mind which is mindful, is what is required. So if you like, still, as I said, Right at the beginning of this, mindfulness is the chief way of dealing with our movement through life. In all of these factors, in all of the seven treasures, in many ways, mindfulness is implied. In the Eightfold Path, mindfulness is actually one of the categories. You know, right mindfulness is actually one of the categories within the Eightfold Path. And of course it's not isolated to being one limb of the path. It permeates out through every other limb. So if you want a quick answer to what do we do about the mess, the first one is mindfulness. Yeah. Mindfulness, but of course we have to have confidence and trust that mindfulness will work. Don't we? To use it at all, we've got to have some degree of confidence and trust that it works. So in order to get that confidence and trust, we've got to have seen it working in some ways. Yeah. Just by paying small degrees of attention, yeah, broadening that base of attention, and then moving it out and further and further into the deeper recesses of our ordinary daily life is what's required. And it means moving it out, of course, into this area of sila, our day-to-day -day doings. Now, again, and we're coming towards the end of the retreat. It's only two full days to go after today. And one of the things I do want to leave you with, of course, and I've mentioned this constantly, but I'm going to say it again, is not, it's not just about being here. It's about that day-to-day -day life. That is where it counts. That is where it's important. If it remains here, it's, in a way, not worth very much. If it just resides in this room. If it just resides, for example, as an awful lot of words which is only hitting me here, rather than here. You know, so it's meant to have an effect on this heart-mind, not simply on this intellect, on this mind. Now, nothing I'm saying, I presume, um, is very difficult to understand. <laughs> you know? Even dependent origination or situational pattern that I turned in last night, that's not difficult to understand, really. It's not that difficult. It's incredibly difficult to perceive, incredibly difficult to practice, to live in accordance with what is going on. So it requires a lot of you. So therefore we still come back to this trust and confidence, the means of inquiry, the impetus behind it. So, coming back to sila again, sila itself, it's that non-harm, it's that not taking what is not, what is not offered. You know, all the ways that we can do that, which I mentioned this morning, I just mentioned a few of them, the myriads of ways in which we can take things which are not offered to us.
both globally, politically, and of course individually. And that's where it really counts for us, on this individual level. What are we doing where things are not offered to us? It might be very, very simple things, I suggest. I'm not going to go into the examples again, because it's really quite unimportant. But just those simple little things where we appropriate something which isn't given or offered freely in life. Now that can be theft, but of course it's those little things which are much in a way more corrosive. Coming back to something that I read this morning, I just again want to re-emphasize because as you gather the theme of today really is sila in many ways, which is the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed develops into a habit, and the habit hardens into character. And what I mean by its corrosive nature is the more you appropriate and the little ways you become, it becomes a habit, and then it becomes part of your character formation. That's what you do. I take these little things which are not offered, yeah, here it goes, just have that one. Not very much, it's not, not very important, is it? You know, these are the kind of stories we can tell ourselves about the lack of importance of these things, but of course it's not. You know, because it's setting up in, in some ways um, thought pathways, ways of thinking about the world, ways about thinking um, about the world in general, whereby the world is for us. And again, notice the us. It's the egotism again which is at the heart of that. So in paying attention to this, in paying attention to these really kind of small issues, you know, start with the big ones obviously, but thereby extend it out into the smaller issues of daily life, such as non-harm and taking what is not offered, I thereby start to, of course, alter the corrosive effects of habitually doing those things, habitually harming and habitually taking what is not offered, appropriating for myself. Because these are tied and bound to ego. They're tied and bound to self, to use the, the correct Buddhist term here. Then there's that sense of misconduct. You know, not just sexual, remember that, it's not just sexual. You know, it's sensual misconduct. You know, su. You know, so it's not just I undertake a rule of training to refrain from sexual misconduct, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from sensual misconduct, which is far bigger and far wider, as you've heard me say, you know, throughout the week so far. But there's so many ways, just like the other two precepts, that we can, you know, basically abuse our senses. We can cause a deadening of ourselves sensually. Overstimulation. You know, the fact, of course, that we live in societies now that can't tell the violence which they see on films and television from the real thing anymore um, shows a deadening factor. Almost like there's kind of callous on the, you know, we don't normally use this word in Buddhist circles, but there's like a callous on the soul, which doesn't allow us to be sensitive any longer to the difference between the two. And so overindulgence in the senses, just like any addiction, requires more and more stimulation. You know, so when I engage in something, be it sexuality, you know, um, an excessive sexual drive, then I want more and more and more of sexual stimulation. If I engage in sensual stimulation, I'm just giving you one example in terms of the kind of misuse we can make of things like television and cinema and music and all of these things, we overstimulate ourselves. So we have to have more and more and more and more and more. It becomes an increasing addiction whereby we have to keep stimulating ourselves in this way. And as I joked about it this morning, some people obviously don't feel safe unless they're plugged in constantly to some kind of media here. So this is not a diatribe against the media as such. Uh, It becomes, in a way, much more of a critique of the way that we hold it and use it. Because it's so attractive, because it's so enticing, and yet it pulls us in. It pulls us into it, and thereby we become, you know, in scare quotes, addicted to it. 
I sometimes doubt that I even need to use the scare quotes. That it's just, you know, that we are fully, fully addicted to these things. But with that loss of sensitivity that necessarily goes with that kind of addiction. You know, so it's a desensitization. And I think that is what the Buddha is worried about when he starts to say, watch and look at the ways that we use our senses. Yeah. This doesn't mean, of course, negating them. It means actually coming back to them in some real way, where we begin to really experience our sensory embodiment. Not the artificial ways. And I sometimes feel that we're descending into a virtual reality in many ways. There are people constantly plugged into computers, constantly plugged into something, uh, whereby their senses are being you know, continuously stimulated in some way or another. But it doesn't connect with the natural world often. What is there? Actually in that natural world. With you know, perhaps the feeling that the I don't know, there's, there's, the sunset on the cinema film is probably more exciting than the real thing. You know, because it's taken from a very nice angle. <laughs> or it's very, using very nice filters to get an effect. You know, this sort of thing. So it's really examining that in relation to our own ways of being. You know, so we look at that in terms of our sensual misconduct. Now, that obviously includes all of the usual ways that we can indulge our senses. And there is one, of course, final rule of training about that. And I won't say too much about that again tonight, because I mentioned it in the morning. But then there is, I'm taking a rule of training to refrain from false speech. Yeah. Now, what is false speech exactly? Well, it's obviously not telling lies, but is it? Is it? And this is just, again, just something I've put out there for you. Is it that tiny little twist or turn that you make in telling a story just to make it a little bit funnier? <laughs> is it that little bit of exaggeration you add when you say, oh, I've had a hell of a day? <laughs> you know? um, I'm sure we've all been there <laughs> and done this sort of thing. Is that false speech? Now, I'm not answering the question, I'm just asking it, I'm just posing it. Because in a sense, that, that is the sort of thing that's under investigation here. might seem innocuous, but of course, like all of these things, it can become habitual. It can become habitual. The idea of you know, not actually saying what is the case. But also, it requires wisdom because... And when we unpack false speech, as I mentioned this morning, in terms of the way the Sri Lankan tradition, extending five precepts into eight precepts, then we get, of course, that false speech actually unpacks also in terms of harsh speech and divisive speech and then idle chatter. Yeah. So harsh speech, I can tell you the truth and I can really tell it about you and I can make you feel like hell because I'm telling you the truth about you. In fact, actually, I think this is actually something we do quite well in England. I don't know if they do it somewhere in other countries. I'm only telling you what I would tell me about myself. <laughs> in other words, what I'm doing is I'm going to beat you up because I usually beat myself up. <laughs> you know, and I can do that with alacrity because I do, you know, that's one of the things I engage in. So that's another example. That could be harsh speech. Yeah, it might be true. It might be true, but how am I using it? And again, notice what's behind this. What is the intention behind the act in doing that? Delisive speech, again, could be true speech in some, some ways. In other words, not factually incorrect. But is it used to create enmity between others? This was very important, actually, by the way, in the Buddhist Sangha, in the monastic community. There's lots of kind of ways of having to look at this in the monastic rules. There's lots of things about the way that you speak to other monks because of creating division in the Sangha. Uh, and that is the only schism that you can actually have in Buddhism is a division in the Sangha, you know, created by often disputes about ways of living. That's the main way that you create division.
Um, and as you can see, a lot of what we do in ordinary life and through ordinary speech is divide one person against the other, quite subtly. You know? Putting them into factions in some ways. And it's quite a human trait to do that. Now, factually, it might not be incorrect, but it could be divisive speech. Look at the intention again behind the act. I actually think all of this goes on in the workplace. Yeah. Most of this goes on in the workplace, and to, you know, to a greater and lesser extent. Something that certainly takes place in all forms of human activity is the next one, idle chatter. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the, the, the literal translation of this is useless speech. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is pretty cutting, isn't it? You know, it makes sense. So idle chatter. We're all engaging in idle chatter. No, it's not. Is it useless? <laughs> what you just said. <laughs> Once again, as you can hear throughout all of this, you have to look at the intention behind it because it's the intention which will govern whether it becomes idle or useless or harsh or divisive or false in each of these instances. And this is really of major concern to us, isn't it? Because we can't help talking. Well, unless you're in Guy House. <laughs> but most of the time we're talking, actually even in Guy House you're talking, because you're talking to yourselves. <laughs> yeah, you can't stop it, can you? You just sit there in meditation, the chatter still goes on. <laughs> yeah. you know, even if you pick up a book, you're chattering, go to bed, and you're still chattering away. <laughs> You're your own best company, really, in that sense. But joking aside, uh, we can't stop speaking, and speech acts are one of the major ways that we are in the world, through acting through our speech. And so it becomes very, very important that we examine the quality of our speech acts and examine them for their ethical, moral quality. And something about all of these precepts is their contextual. It depends on the context. What is right in one moment and in one context might be wrong in another moment in another context. And this is why, actually, Buddhist ethics is not easy. You probably gather Buddhism isn't easy in any way or shape or form. It actually puts the onus firmly on you. Um, it would be far easier if we had a set of rules that said, don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual misconduct, don't lie. Well, the final one, don't take drink and drugs. Yeah. It'd be far easier to, to just adhere to that, because it's quite simple, isn't it? Straightforward. You know, I never lie. I never steal. Yeah, things like that. That's not Buddhist ethics at all. Buddhist ethics is very much about the context, very much about situation, and it requires mindfulness. Surprise, surprise. It requires mindfulness again in each of the situations because it needs us to see quite clearly into that situation as to what is appropriate or what is not appropriate in those situations. And it's interesting because actually the word that's used in the Eightfold Path, which is usually in you know, Samavacha, which usually means usually translated as right speech, actually means appropriate speech. What speech is appropriate in any given situation? So we have to judge the appropriateness of the speech by the intention and by the context that we're there. Finally, of course, we have this business, and I won't go into this again, of drink and drugs. Um, basically, I, refrain, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking intoxicants, which lead to heedlessness. Yeah, I love the old-fashioned, I just love that word, heedlessness. It's got, it's got a lovely resonance to it. Yeah. Nice and old fashioned. And what we mean by that, of course, it's going to lead basically to all of the infringement of the other precepts. Because, as we know, under the influence of strong drink and strong drugs, then it leads to basically loss of mindfulness. And that's basically what heedlessness refers to the loss of mindfulness in given situations where we literally don't know what we're saying, don't know what we're doing, and often don't care in these situations under the influence of these things. 
And as I said this morning, again, just to emphasize it for those who were there this morning and for those who are just coming in this evening, I have to say it afresh, but this is very, very important because it militates actually against what the Buddhist path or the Buddha's path or the way is all about, this way of mindfulness. It's about keeping mindfulness. Um, and I quoted this morning one of, um, one of the seven Dalai Lama's quotes, which was, you know, why, if you're trying to clear the mind, knowingly take something which is poison? Why do that? It's quite powerful if you actually think about that phrase. Why, if you're trying to lead this particular life and clarify the mind, take poison? There are many, many ways of taking poison, by the way. <laughs> now, again, the five precepts, they overlap. They're not exclusive. As you can see, you know, speech can be harm, um, and harm can be speech. And, you know, censoring misconduct can be related to the fifth precept. Um, because the fifth precept itself, you know, am I using, for example, a particular type of media as an intoxicant? Because I might be, might not actually be taking or imbibing something, but I'm imbibing in a different way. You know, imbibing it through my ears, you know, through my eyes. You know, so this is the way they interact here. And this is, for the lay people, the domain of sila. They're a little bit more complex if you're a monastic. There's just near 227 of them, instead of five or eight. Yeah, so this is really, for the lay person, the guidance that we require in terms of sila. Okay, I'm going to mention one more of the treasures this evening. Actually, no, I'll mention two. <laughs> two for the price of one. <laughs> and this again is on the relationship of sila in many ways, and these are two Pali terms um, which are quite difficult to translate. The first one in Pali is hi, the second one is otapa. Usually translated as shame and fear of wrongdoing. Here. And what these are trying to indicate, and these are called the world protecting dharmas. Here. Because in many ways, this word hiri, which is usually translated as I say as shame, can also be translated as conscience and self respect and the way that you are in regard to your own ethical principles. Here. This is all really contained in this word otapa, you know, which is, as you, when you often experience a feeling of shame, as Buddha Gosa, one of the commentators, makes it quite clear, it's not the judgment of the world which is paramount here, it's the way that you see yourself in your own eyes that is paramount in this particular instance. You know, so it's, it's the way that you are judging yourself in this instance. And you know, despite the fact we talk often in Buddhism, and I've kind of tried to lay this out to you in quite a number of different ways, that we are not taking this really lacerating criticism to ourselves, but learning to be kind to ourselves, but Buddhism also still talks about, or the, the, the path still talks about, the development of this sense of self-respect or conscience as being important, and to know when we've failed in our own eyes. You know, to know, to, to know when we've transgressed our own sense of ethics towards whatever it might be. It might be, for example, in regard to the precepts. You know, you've come away from something, um, and um, you know, being at the party or something like that, and you've come away, becoming aware that you've suddenly engaged in all of this mindless chatter. There's a wonderful quote actually in Kierkegaard's diary. Kierkegaard's the Danish philosopher, and he says in his diary one night, he writes, he says, "Tonight I was the life and soul of the party. Witticisms dripped from my lips." Um, and conversation flowed. I came home and wanted to shoot myself. <laughs> now you can see what that is. That's a real touch of hearing. <laughs> it's a real touch of shame or conscience about what you're engaging in. In other words, we fall short of our standards. And again, we can do that because of conditioning and being pulled into these situations. So here it is something to be developed, our sense of conscience, our sense of our own self-respect. Because that is the other thing that goes, isn't it? 
when we transgress our own sense of ethical propriety, not anybody else's, but the ones that we create for ourselves. For example, if we accept the precepts freely for ourselves, and that's what it is, it's not signing up to them, it's accepting them for ourselves, accepting them as ways that we want to guide our life by, and if you accept them freely as ways that you want to guide your life by, and then transgress them, in some way or another, well, it's not about beating yourself up, but it's about often our loss of self-respect that occurs when we don't we live up to the principles that we set for ourselves, not what others set for us, not what society is setting for us, but what we are setting for ourselves here. Now, the counterbalance to that is this other term, which is called otapa. Now, otapa is generally translated as fear of wrongdoing, but it's about the ways that we are together. It's much more about a sense of decorum that we have among ourselves as a society. So it's much more to do with morals. If he, this sense of shame, conscience, self-respect, is actually to do with our own ethical principles, then this other psychological factor, otapa, is to do with our sense of communality here. And Buddhaghosa again makes it clear in this, he says that the person who um, has utapa is judging themselves in relation to others. It's not how I see myself, but how others see me. Yeah? Because in other words, it's about the mores of our society. Now to finally conclude this, I'll pick this up because I'm just we're running out of time this evening. Um, I'll pick this up a little bit again tomorrow night because there's a lot more in this, as you can probably gather, in these two terms as being really important. Now, both of these terms are world-protecting dharmas. They are things which protect us. They are called lokapala in Pali, which literally means guardians of the world. Yeah. They're also called powers as well. Yeah, bala, which means power. Yeah, they're powers that we have. They're there in the psyche. Now, with these two terms, it's important in the sense that they are in some kind of conversation. That there is a conversation between my own sense of ethical propriety and the morals of the society I live in. That the morals of the society I live in might be completely and utterly wrong. Yet also, I might be completely and utterly wrong. So you need the balance and counterbalance of the two terms working in some kind of dialogue together. So psychologically, we have to balance, don't we? If you think about this in our relations to our society and the ways we're trying to extricate ourselves out of the mess that we find ourselves in, we're having to balance our own sense of what is right and fair and proper for ourselves with the demands of our society, because none of us live outside of it at all. We can't exclude ourselves from it. Yet sometimes there might be conflict between the two, and that is important. It's very interesting that it's quite possible, for example, and I'll go into this a little bit more thoroughly tomorrow, it might be quite possible to be thoroughly moral but completely unethical. As many totalitarian societies have wanted you to be, you can be completely moral and adhere to all the strictures of the society, but can be completely and utterly unethical here. So the two are needed. And this is part of what it means to use the psychological conditions as a form of investigation in our world, in the real, ordinary, day-to-day existence of living. Because these two factors are required a lot of the time, as you can probably see. Now, we haven't got onto the final ones. Uh, I'll just mention what they are. This is a sneak preview of tomorrow night. <laughs> the sneak preview here is in three other terms which we haven't covered, which is sutta, which actually means learning. It means listening or learning, which is important. This is another treasure that we can have. Uh, there's something called chaga, which is generosity, which is really important. And finally, the one that changes it all, panya, understanding, insight, or wisdom. So, it's, so those are the seven um, 
seven treasures that make us rich beyond material wealth. But I'll come into the last three tomorrow night because obviously, particularly the latter two are extremely important, which is generosity and panya. Yeah, generosity and wisdom, just to use the old translation. And I think I'll finish there for tonight. Okay, it's over to you. See if you have any questions. <laughs> yeah. Mm. What is happening at any given moment? And Okay, that's a very big issue, actually. Um, no, 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 it's a, it's a good question. I mean, Buddhism, let me say this in, 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 a, in a sort of more Buddhist way than, than, than what is the case. I mean, Buddhism as a tradition, as a way of seeing things, is always seeing things the way they really are. They could have called it Yatabhutanam, which actually, the way they actually are, not the way you would like them to be. Not the way I perceive it. You know? A lot of this relational stuff is about, well, I perceive it this way, and you perceive it that way. Yeah. This is actually about the way it actually is. And what they talk about in this, and this actually relates to something I'll mention tomorrow night, is penetrating insight into the way things actually are. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's not so simple at all. And this is, this, is, this is the eye of wisdom, this is the eye of panya, if I'm going to use the Pali term, which is meant to, be brought, meant to be brought to bear on any situation that we're in. So there's a kind of dispassion to it as well. Now the kind of situations that you're talking about are extremely not dispassionate. You know, they're extremely passionate in terms, because they are perspectives. Um, I mean, many philosophers over the centuries, particularly Nietzsche in the 19th century, thought there were only such things as perspectives. Didn't think there was any such thing as truth. He thought there was only what he called an army of marching metaphors. Um, no truth whatsoever. Now, the Buddhist way is not that. There is a way things actually are. It's changing, though. And it's changing continuously. And this is part of the problem, for example, in even just the things I've referred to, like our, our ability to apply ethical principles to our lives. Because you know, what might be an appropriate ethical principle at one moment is no longer an ethical appropriate principle at the next moment, because it's changed. The moment has changed. Well, I'm sure we've all had this, haven't we, in conversation, for example, when you're in conversation with somebody and you go to say something which you feel the other person ought to hear, and something about the dynamics has suddenly changed. And it no longer seems appropriate to say that. And if you actually do say something, it's like blundering in, into that moment. The same is true of ethical principles. A lot of the way that we handle ethical ways of being in the world are actually blundering. We kind of have a scattergun effect. <laughs> you know, we kind of blast as many possible opportunities as we can um, with one blast of our ethical principle. Now, that's not the Buddhist way. It's actually to move with the changing situation. And again, this doesn't make life easy for us. It does not make life easy because it means that we have to be mindful and aware continuously. Now, coming back to your relational situation, it's completely opposite to that. Because the relational situation is always often, well, not always, but often about the conflict of egos in dispute over an interpretation of what has actually gone on. I mean, in fact, there's a great novelistic tradition in the West of actually doing this. There's something, I don't know if you've read it, called the Alexandra Quartet, which is the same story told from four different perspectives. You know, one, only one of which is actually true. 
Yeah. It's called a novel of sliding panels. I love that idea. Yeah. But uh, some of the panels actually match up in areas and others don't at all. And actually, that's much of what's going on in ordinary life. That we don't actually see what is going on at all for ourselves or for the other. Now, in a way, it might sound idealistic, but the whole process of the path is opening up to the possibility of being able to see with that dynamic, that dynamic focus that allows change to be seen and to see the different perspectives. Also, to see the other's perspective as well. Yeah. There's a great thing, I haven't mentioned this yet, and I will actually devote one, probably the last night, to talking about this, because it's so, so important, which is uh, the development of empathy for others. You know, seeing, putting yourself in the other's place, seeing their perspective in many ways. And the word for empathy, and I don't actually like the word empathy, it sounds a bit patronising at times. Um, but the word in, in Pali and Sanskrit, well, the word in Pali is anukampa, the word in Sanskrit is anukrosha. And what it literally means, and I love the literal meaning of this, is to cry out at the crying out of another. It's a beautiful way, it's almost poetic, the way it uh, expresses itself. You know, so it's not kind of just sinking myself into your position. <laughs> it's that real heartfelt connectedness. And again, that is about relation here. It's about the relational field that we're engaged in. So one of the things that we're you know, expected to at least start to develop is this feeling for others. We're beginning stages. Metta is the beginning stage of it. Beginning to feel for others in some way. Feeling kindly towards them. Feeling, actually, and this might sound strange, at the end of, towards the end of a meta retreat, other beings are quite lovable. <laughs> that is what it's about, is actually that appreciation that there is lovability to other beings, no matter how irritating they are. <laughs> Again, it's a response. It's, it's such a broad field. I mean, some of it I'm sure I'm going to touch on, and hopefully that you'll um, begin to get a broader perspective on it. But that's kind of just a, a basic response to, to your question. Yeah. John, one thing about um, the I'm not sure how to formulate it, but thinking about the difference between shame, which is obviously, as you're describing, a kind of a useful, powerful quality, mm. and, um, and guilt and feeling kind of remorse and mm. resentment and how they can kind of something that's useful can slip into something that's not so useful. Mm. <coughs> well, as I know you know, because I've said it to you many times, that, um, well, within the field... You know, within um, Asian languages in general, there is no real word for guilt, and certainly not in Indian languages, other than those influenced by the theistic religious traditions. Yeah. So there's no guilt. Think about that. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely idea, is there no guilt? Um, but there is shame, and the difference between the two... Um, is very important because the idea of shame, which is this word Ohtahiri, which I've been translating as also self-respect and conscience, because it has both of those feelings within it. Because when I feel a sense of shame, I have a sense of conscience about having done something wrong. And I have a sense of, I've diminished myself in my own eyes by doing that. And I'm sure we've all had that experience from time to time. Uh, but when you feel that... Um, and this is the actual really positive dimension to this, you can feel that, that the next moment can be an opportunity to do something better. So shame is instantaneous. It arises in the moment you know, when, for example, you fail in your own eyes in some way. But it doesn't have what I think guilt has, which is what I call historical baggage. You know, in other words, guilt is like a sack that we carry on our back, you know, historically. I, you know, if I've done something in the past, um, I can feel guiltier about it sometimes now than I did 20 years ago when I did it. Yeah. 
And, and that is the big thing about guilt. It's, it's a psychological baggage that we carry along with us. Now, in some ways, I think these words in English slip and slide all over the place. And sometimes what we mean by shame actually is you know, what is meant by guilt, and sometimes what meant by guilt is by shame. But I think the real distinction between the two is the one is instantaneous and the other is kind of historical. It has this kind of quality of carrying it along with you. you know, in other words, in fact, a lot of um, the conditioning within our societies is to make us feel guilty. You know, you're guilty if you don't do X and Y and Z, and you're not a good person if you do these things. The difference from, they're quite different from shame. Yeah, they're very, very quite different. In fact, you know, you're made to feel as if that's something you carry along with you all of the time. In fact, even our judicial system is based on that, isn't it? On guilt. In some senses, you can't eradicate the guilt at all of having done something wrong. And so, therefore, our justice system becomes more about retribution than it does about the possibility of rehabilitation. Because, you know, somebody who's guilty has got to be forever guilty of whatever they've done. They can't possibly change because there's a thing inside them which is guilty, you know, if they haven't done what they've done. Um, and I think that's why I personally find um, the idea of shame and, and, and hearing within this psychological tradition far more useful than the notion of guilt, which seems to me to be just such unnecessary baggage that most people carry along with them. And it really is quite really tragic that sometimes people, right from being very, very small with their condition into it, can feel almost as guilty for being at all, you know, for their presence in the world at all. And it's a horrible condition to be in. Um, and I've met a number of people who like that. who have got such sense, uh, such a self, sense of poor self-esteem that they feel guilty just for, you know, just for being in the world at all. And it's such a tragic affair when that happens. I don't know if that answers your question, do yeah. Yeah. I always give long answers to short questions. <laughs> Sorry, Peter. Give you a long question. Okay. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk a bit more about faith. Yeah. Um, you, you say it was um, trusting in knowledge. But if we have knowledge, I feel we don't need faith because the knowledge says this is a fact. But it's not faith. That's what I was trying to say. It's, it's not faith, it's confidence. Because in any path of knowledge, there are always areas, for example, um, and this is just pedagogical as much as anything else, that in the field of knowledge, for example, if I'm studying with somebody, history or science or whatever it is, I might know some dimensions of that, but I don't know what the teacher knows. Therefore, I have to have trust or at least a confidence that the teacher knows what they're doing and what they're saying and what they're talking about there. But this is where my difficulty lies, because I've had faith uh, many times in the past mm. and it's fallen apart around me. Yeah. And in my, in my Buddhist work, I only believe what I see or what I feel, what I sense, mm-hmm. what happens for me. And everything you're saying sounds right, but I'm going to check it out. Yeah. Or should I say it resonates with something which I see, yes, that does happen in my life, correct, that's actually, that's actually um, uh, um, settles a pattern for me, mm. and helps me understand exactly what is going on in my life. Mm. So there's no faith there, it is actually knowledge. So well, I, you see, that's why, this, that's why I deliberately said that the, the, the translation of Sadar as faith is a bad translation. All it means is confidence or trust. It's like trusting, I don't know how well placed it is these days, but it's like trusting that your doctor can diagnose what is wrong with you when you go to the doctor. It's something like that. In in, in a sense, a lot of the material we've been talking about is not meant to be taken on faith. It's meant to be taken on with a degree of trust that there is a correct diagnosis going on here to help us to investigate. But only you can empirically verify that in the end. And it stands or falls by whether you can actually empirically verify it. Either I do believe, or I don't, so I'm not sure why the word confidence has been at all. 
Um, I can't almost see what the quibble here is. I mean, it just, it just seems to me to be um, almost painfully obvious that there are certain areas that I don't know about that I have to have confidence in, as I say, the teacher, that they know what they're talking about and they're laying out, for example, something which can be investigated and that eventually might raise, you know, be raised to knowledge. Now, in order to do that, I have to have a degree of impetus behind it, and that impetus, all I'm calling that impetus, to investigate is being a confidence. That's all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll stop there. <laughs> no, sorry. I thought confidence being confidence with faith. Well, yes. I know, actually, I prefer the word trust in many ways. But uh, I don't go down the Latin route. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.